2: Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this, communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet, to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send or receive, it's something we make. I'm your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors and reviewers, to editors and managers, as well as to scholars of communication and professionals in communication, all talking about how it is that the written word makes known the real world. My guests today are Cassidy Sugimoto and Vincent Lariviere, co-authors on many publications in such high profile journals as Nature and PNAS, as well as a new book, Equity for Women in Science, Dismantling Systemic Barriers to Advancement, published this year by Harvard University Press. Cassidy is professor and chair in the School of Public Policy at Georgia Institute of Techno- Technology. She is also president of the International Society for Scientometrics and Informetrics. Vincent is professor of information science at the Universite de Montreal, where he also serves as associate vice president of planning and communications. His scientific he is also scientific director of the Erudit journal platform and associate scientific director of the Observatoire des Sciences and des Technologies. So let's begin today's episode. Cassidy Sugimoto and Vincent LaRiviere on Scholarly Communication. Hi Cassidy, hi Vincent. Welcome to the program.
0: Thank you for having us. Hi. So
2: um, there's this one. There's so many wonderful quotes in the book. You bring things to a wonderful point. One that just comes to mind and occurs rather late in the book, but seems to summarize also so much is: science is a social institution with its own set of norms. As such, it also bears responsibility for the reproduction of iniquities. And I I like that because as my listeners will know i i work helping science uh, scientists communicate their work and very often i notice that at least half of the work that they're doing is not in the paper but in how they go about researching and whom they're researching with and where and so on and and that really comes out in that quote is that a quote that you might be able to pick up and and to give us a sense of of the work that you've been doing over the past years
0: sure oh, thank you i think it it drives much of what we're doing. And I love the alignment with this podcast, thinking about place and time and the context in which research is practiced and conducted and understanding how much it is situated in the human experience. And that drives a lot of the research questions that we're asking. And as we move towards the recommendations, towards the policies, we want scientists to realize that they are not passive actors in this, but rather they can take an active role in not only understanding and studying disparities, but also changing the ways in which they do science to mitigate some of these disparities that we observe. Yeah, I, obviously I
3: agree with Cassidy. I'd add that there, there's a responsibility for researchers to do good science, but also to create the social conditions under which uh, we can do this good science and actually may, may, make science better. So we, this sentence, I actually read it uh, I would say a year and a half after reading it for the last time, uh, as kind of a plea for for a reflexivity by scientists to understand themselves as a group and and again, yeah, to create the social conditions um, under which they, their lab and science in general can,
2: can do better. And w- w- what is captured in it is, I think, for many scientists out there who are, of course, very specialized in whichever discipline that they're in and focusing on whichever questions they're actually trying to answer. It opens that perspective onto the social end of science, which, again, in my work with writing and helping scientists publish, I realize is so vital. And that is what the science of science, your sort of work, helps provide. This objective description of working environments, working styles, the collaborator collaborators that we're with. For example, uh, to take the book title that I mentioned here in the introduction, it matters if you're a woman or not, doesn't it?
0: Exactly. And I think that is one of the things we wanted to look at is to take a social approach, but also take it from a macro and quantitative angle to be able to look at how those practices Who does science? Who gets to be a collaborator? What role do they play when they're collaborating? And how does that change what we know? So Mm -hmm. it is not just justice for the individuals, ensuring that every individual has access to a scientific career and activities, but also changing what knowledge is generated and created because of who is doing science and the roles that they're playing. So that drives a lot of our inquiry, um, both before the book, and then frames a lot of what we do within that book.
2: Nothing to add. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, and I mean that makes me think of one of the works cited and one of the works that you also co-authored for Lancet back in 2019, mm-hmm. that uh, the the factors there that affect sex-related reporting in medical research. Um, there we have Cassidy exactly. I think what you're talking about this idea that you know what we know in health sciences is, is also partially dependent upon who is doing the research in health sciences.
0: And we've found that that work particularly is quite persuasive across a range of ideologies. I think there's a general sense that science is a meritocracy. And we try to show throughout our research that science doesn't operate in the neutral way in which most uh, scientists and policymakers would assume or would like it to operate. And so we've shown some of those disparities. And we asked ourselves that question, what does it matter For science? How would it change what is known? In the Lancet paper, we did a very simple analysis of that, looking at the study of women as objects of study themselves. How much do we know about women's bodies, women's health, and how does that change by whether or not women are doing science? And what we found is that women were much more likely to study issues related to women's health and women's bodies. Therefore, having more women in science changes what we know about the female body which is 50% of the population and 100% of the birthing population is a really important population to study and to know. And we extended that into our latest work looking at the intersection of race and gender to show it's not only gender that changes your framing and your approach and the type of research questions you ask, but also your ethnicity and your racial classification within a national context will frame those kinds of questions. And so that we're all pulling from our lived experience when we go into a Curiosity-driven field like science, we're going to generate questions that resonate with us on a personal level. Therefore, diversifying the scientific workforce diversifies that array of potential questions that can be asked and answered.
3: And, and, and this is true, of course, for for fields related to medicine or or to psychology or generally to the social sciences, where where people and researchers can relate to their research object. But we also see that in fields like physics, uh, women and and let's say other other minorities in science uh, study topics that are a bit different than than than, than let's say the the typical white uh, white male scientist, and this is something that we did not really emphasize in the PNAS paper, but and it's data that's buried in the supplemental. Uh, but it's a very strong relationship that's pretty much observed everywhere, not only in social sciences and in medicine.
0: And I'll add to that that when we look at just the topics, we're also able to see scientists as they move from one topic to another. And so in some of our studies that we've done, and and most of this is unpublished, we've looked at migrations of a scholar across different fields. And we find, for example, women are much more likely to move um, to a more applied field and to look at, for example, the application of physics in biomedicine. And so we see these kinds of trajectories, these stories and these careers, which also highlight that different people within the scientific system are going to emphasize different aspects.
2: And then there's, I mean, this is the content level. And 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 that is indeed mind-blowing. I mean, when we think not only just of meritocracy, as you began uh, d- 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 sort of introducing this whole aspect to the topic, but the, the idea of, well, we imagine science as being objective. You know, we imagine science as we are just looking for the facts and we're objectively interpreting them as best we can and so on. And it seems that there's a lot more at play there than we would just imagine. I mean, the content itself is actually getting affected. And, and on a personal level, an interpersonal level, there's a lot happening as well. I mean, not just which actual content is being um, researched, but where you end up, which which sort of institute, or even which field or branch of knowledge you end up in. Um, you, you have this wonderful line early on in the book when you're talking about production where you say, you know, women who at uh, or young women in, in high school who have seen physics teachers who were women then felt that, hey, those are people who are like me and I could be doing what they're doing. This right. this idea of embodiment, right? They embody in their role as a as a physics teacher or a science teacher, things that I can relate to. And this you you develop throughout the entire book, you know, noticing or recognizing people who are like you in particular roles invites you in there.
0: Well, I want to disentangle. I think there's a lot of really interesting nuggets in what you just said, Daniel. And the first is to be clear of disentangling objectivity from perspective. I think it's very easy to take our work and say, well, everyone's then bringing a different perspective. And therefore, there's a lack of objectivity, I think that you can bring varied perspective and still do very objective research. So I want to emphasize that that's an important distinction there. However, I think where we often lack objectivity is in the review and evaluation of science. So you're, to your point, the way in which people are distributed across institutions, the type of venues that disseminate their knowledge, that is where I see a lack of objectivity. When people look at certain epistemological frameworks or methodological approaches or certain topics and they diminish their value or they determine that they are not at the type of, they're not the type of research they want to see in that institution or in that space. I think the best example of this is a study not done by us, but I think a a fantastic study looking at the National Institutes of Health in the United States. And they found that Black and African-American scholars were funded at a lower rate, but they didn't see differences in the acceptance rates between areas. What they found was the reason, the primary reason for the lower rates of funding was because those scholars were trying to access a funding pool that was the smallest among all that the NIH op- offered. It was the type of topics that they wanted to study the NIH didn't value. And I think we see that in some of the premier venues as well. They tend to disproportionately cover topics that are done by certain populations, primarily white men. And we see that same type of thing happen in institutions, disproportionately hiring either white men or people who do... Types of research that looks a lot like a portfolio that would reflect that white and male portfolio and topics. So I think again that objectivity is coming in at the evaluation stage, which is deciding what type of research is valued, and will be uh, perpetuated through the allocation of resources such as grant funding, um, or spaces in elite institutions.
2: I just want to underline something there. I'm sure, Vincent, you want to uh, weigh in on that as well. But th- this is, for me, one of the fascinating things in science of science work is is that nuanced look that you've just laid out there for us, uh, Cassidy, where we assume it's one thing. Yeah, it's a sort of discrimination maybe against African-American scholars. But it turns out to be far more complex than that. There's many more factors involved in and in why something like that happens. Um, but please. Yes. No, but you're right again. The, the, what
3: we show in one of our pieces published last year, which is the the relationship between topics and and identity, and seeing that the topics that would be interesting to some identities are actually devalued by the dominant part of the of the scientific community, uh, which which in a way creates a double penalty. There there's less minorities in science and the topics on which they work they work. Are not are are not are not as value. Uh, I want to go back to the, the meritocratic aspect because I think this is an important one, and we need to be precise with words here. Science is not a pure meritocracy, as some people believe, but it's also not a total social construction, or a or merit is not totally socially constructed, which is why it's complicated. Uh, it has a meritocratic aspect, um, but also a lot of the aspects and a lot of, let's say, the winners in the system are, one could say, socially determined. They're, most of your uh, the listeners to your podcast probably have heard of the Matthew effect in science, which is a uh, sociological phenomenon by by which those who have visibility and science and symbolic capital will get more symbolic capital Uh, and this has a strong role in, in, in people's award and people's recognition in the field if you get recognized then you are more likely to be recognized more and it's true at the individual level and it's also true I believe at the group level with markers of prestige like journals and institutions.
2: Well, this, this I mean, one of the major, I mean, there's so many findings in the book. Uh, I'm thinking of the book right now, um, uh, Equity for Women in Science. So many fascinating studies that are reported on and also reported from your own work. But th- what you're saying right there makes me think of, let's say, last authors, right? They tend mm-hmm. to be actually men and not women. So this is one of those variations on that matthew effect isn't it that you're speaking of there right right now uh, vincent
3: yeah absolutely well it's the it's the senior position uh where, where, where once you move there you are more likely to get a lot of the rewards and and a lot of the the recognition um but yeah it's, it's one of those positions and of course there's a uh cohort effect there where in the scientific system women are roughly five years younger than men which partly explains why they are less likely to be in the last authorship position. But what we're also showing is that there's much more attrition for women. So women are more likely when they finish their PhD to actually not go the typical PI route, but but go into more lab technicians type of trajectory, which then makes them less likely <laughs> to, to, to get into the last authorship position. And then rolling that back to the role model aspect that, that you mentioned earlier to actually signal that it's possible for women to to reach uh, that level
0: and i want to go on that role modeling or daniel your your word of embodiment there yeah. one of my Favorite finding is in the book is re- related to the woman in the last author position. And we had not seen this in any of our previous studies, but in doing the book, we found that when a woman was in that last author position, she was much more likely to engage other women throughout all authorship roles and in first authorship position, which is another coveted primary Mm -hmm. authorship position. And so in terms of generating a new cohort, a new generation um, Mm -hmm. of women scholars, senior women were much more likely to do that than senior men. So I think it's really important when we look at different policies, there is often, again, back to that uh, perceived meritocracy There is a knee-jerk reaction against quotas, Um, but I think things like quota hiring at the senior level are not just about changing the demographic of that senior level, but they have manifest consequences for the junior level and the sort of addressing some of those inherent biases and barriers that happen for women in science.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Yeah, you pick up a finding there that really caught my attention as well, uh, Cassidy. That 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 likelihood of about forty percent, where a woman woman led team will engage, then say in first author positions, other women, whereas in men led teams, that's that's in around thirty percent, right? So a significant difference there, and it got me mm-hmm. to thinking, like. I mean, how is it, how far can we go to explaining something like that? Because I I get the sense that, okay, is there just simply malign discrimination involved here? There will be in cases for sure, Mm -hmm. but is it, is it also some of this to get back to that embodiment question? Is it imagining ourselves in a role that we see other people like us already embodying?
3: Yeah, I, I think very quickly, uh, I think there's a discrimination element, but I don't believe being an optimistic that is the dominant part of it. I think as a as a student, you will typically go to study with someone that you can relate to. Um, and I think that's probably the driving force. Of course, there's probably a topical element as, as well, uh, which we don't control for in that figure. Uh, but I think the role model plays a huge role. Go, go ahead, Cassidy.
0: No, it's perfect segue into it. I love this idea of science of science, being able to understand the complexity of this situation and understanding that any social phenomena will have both a lot of complexity and a lot of uncertainty. There will be many elements that we can't measure quantitatively um, or that we can't measure at all. One of my concerns, though, tends to be when we take a very quantitative approach to all of these things, we try to control for everything. Well, let's Mm -hmm. control for age, Let's control for career length. Let's control for childbirth. Let's control for elder care. And suddenly we control for everything. and We find there is no difference between outcomes for men and women once you've controlled for all the factors. And when I look at that, I say that your factors are what explain everything. Your factors there tell us why women are less productive. Yes, because Child rearing takes a toll on productivity. So from a policy aspect, we should think about how we allow spaces for mothers to also be academics. We see that there's attrition, And that affects um, what we see at the senior rates. Well, let's think about how we keep women in science and don't allow them to attrit at these rates that are Mm -hmm. much higher than men. So I think sometimes we take the quantitative perspective a little too far. And in trying to pull it into a beautiful regression that controls for everything, we lose sight of the factors that are actually driving some of the disparities that we observe.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this I mean, you really just already answered a question that I was going to raise <laughs> because, <laughs> because 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 in, in the science of science, what often impresses me is the ingenuity of the study designs, which is what you're speaking to there. I believe, uh, Cassidy. I mean, I one example I like to cite is uh, a 2016 uh, science study w- which included as co-author Dashan Wang, for example, that kind of dispels the myth that you know a younger scientist is more creative because of the observed facts that they were just having high impact papers, but it turned out that impact is random if you just simply control for productivity, which actually was then the key factor in that. And, and it's findings like that again and again, where in science of science, you just you're seeing more clearly what's actually there. And yet your point, Cassidy, is, is great because one of the things that comes out in, in the book, especially through the vignettes that open each of the chapters, is is this idea of, hey, we're dealing with a long-term culture here. We're talking about women entering science slowly over the past hundred plus years. and And they've been adopting a role which hasn't been the male role. And that has had a follow-on effect and is still with us today.
0: And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot is that conception of the ideal scientist. What Mm. does it look like to be a scientific worker? So it goes back to the embodiment, but it's also about changing culture, changing norms, changing academic and other research environments. What does it mean to be an ideal scientific worker? Do you need to have a spouse at home doing most of the domestic care? Do you need to be able to travel at will? Um, Do you need to be disentangled from your community? Mm -hmm. Can you be faith-based, right? All of these are questions that determine who can and cannot be a scientist. And those tend to disproportionately align with certain identity lines. And so I think one of the questions and challenges that research institutions and policy makers have is to ask how they're perpetuating this mythology of what it looks like to be a scientist. And I think that is where we can really start to create policies that change the culture and climate so that science is much more inclusive for all parties.
3: But but still, there's a lot of challenges there. Science of science remains a social science. Uh, which means that experimenting is not so easy. Uh, you cannot have control groups uh, as easily as when you're working with cells or, or things that don't have agency. Uh, so, so we're trying to create experiments based on what has happened in the past, which which, which unfortunately has limitations, which means that there, there's uh, the policies that we're developing are based on past conditions, which may not repeat in the future uh which again i think i think ma- makes it difficult uh and speaking very briefly on the on the piece you mentioned Danielle, on uh on on on, on discoveries and the randomness of it uh it's it's something that that is going to be increasingly difficult i think to do in the future because uh w- when we're talking about these discoveries we're we're following individuals uh in this case the dash and Piece looks at I think in Nobel Prize winners. Uh, and most of the research is actually done collaboratively, and the conceptualization and the the the, the, the research itself, um, the contributions are made by groups, and those groups are going to be heterogeneous. It's not one white person. It's going to be hopefully a group of people with different identities and different ages. Uh, so 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 hopefully we're going to move to what is the not so much discussing what's the ideal scientist, but what is the ideal group? How should science be structured in order to to yeah make it, make the most
2: important discoveries? There's two directions I could go from there. You're giving me too much material, probably. <laughs> uh, one thing I do want to touch on before we close out for sure is 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 recommendations and and and, and changes in policy, changes in attitudes, and so on. Um, that's even actually given special. Uh, place in in most science of science work because it sees itself also always somehow as applied and the final chapter in your book takes this 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 torch up for sure um but to delay that a moment uh, the, the, this idea of collaboration that vincent is talking about and also contribution or contributorship which which gets exactly. an entire which gets an entire uh, chapter in, in your book was also for me absolutely fascinating i mean to speak directly to my day-to-day work in in writing, the breakdown of original draft versus review and editing as being, mm-hmm. let's say, the two sections of what's done in writing, is also gendered. Could could you tell us a bit about that?
0: I was going to let you take it, Basal, but
3: no, go ahead, Cassidy. It's your <laughs> it's your favorite chapter.
0: It is. I. <laughs> I'm very interested in that construction of knowledge itself. And I think, Daniel, you are too in the day-to-day work that, that you do. So we have this space in which we've done the practice of science and now we need to narrate it. We need to make it manifest in this document that has certain constraints in the figures and in the word count. And so the writing of scientific work to me is so interesting and so important. And what we found is that as we have a more fine-grained and nuanced way of understanding contributorship, that at first, when we just look at writing the work as one uniform thing, it looks like men are doing a lot of it. But once we actually disentangle who's writing the original draft and who's reviewing and editing, we find that women are doing the bulk of that original writing. And to me, that's a fascinating thing now, not only in the gendered lines, but as we move towards the inclusion of more AI in scholarly Mm -hmm. communication. What is the role of authorship? How important is the selection of words in the choice of how you tell that story? Now, to me, science should be about precision. And so the choice of words is an essential part of communicating science. But when we look at how we um, distribute that labor across a scientific team, when we turn that over to certain tools to generate, we're opening an entirely new space about what it means to communicate science and what the role of that is in the scientific practice itself. Mm-hmm. So to me, I love disentangling that and thinking about concentrated versus distributed models of scientific production and authoring um, and what that means. And we we also find a gender nature not only in the writing and editing, but How those teams are constructed, where when a woman is leading a team, she tends to be more intimately involved with all aspects of the knowledge production from the data analysis um, to writing up the results, where men tend to lead much more distributed teams, they'll review and edit it. They'll provide the funding and they'll do some conceptualization and design, but other laborers in science are doing the rest of the work. So what does it mean for us when science is not a cohesive whole, but a series of distributed tasks and some of them now distributed to tools instead of human personnel? I think it opens us up into a really interesting conversation about what science is, particularly when we tend to think about science as the written documentation of it rather than the practice of it.
2: Yeah. And uh, the... Uh, that 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 breakdown of the original draft versus the review got me to thinking that you know there's something about the original draft which is trying to be precise trying to hit on point the actual object of inquiry and there's something very much about the editing or review process which is gearing it towards the research community i, I mean this is a broad generalization for sure but I, I i would say that that's the general pull of both both of those actions and it, it got me to thinking of what, why should that be then? Why should it be that there is a discrepancy there in the gendered roles? And I think it may come back again down to leadership positions where you've got just simply, so. yeah. Yeah, it,
3: it's it definitely a, a seniority aspect, uh, but it also uh, it also speaks to the, the gender gap that we're observing in research productivity. If you have to, as we see in the data, do the bulk of the investigation, so having your hands in in the lab, as well as write the original draft, the amount of time that you're going to be spending is one or two orders of magnitude more than someone who comes up with ideas and who does the editing at the end. Uh, And so the the, the one paper a year-ish that we're we're seeing, so, so basically in the data, we're seeing that women, on average, publish one paper less uh than men on an annual basis uh is quite likely due to that division of labor and and right now we don't have great data to actually uh to actually uh confirm that that hypothesis, but to me that's
2: kind of an obvious one the promised point about um advice and action and things that can be done. Again, the last chapter that you uh, have in the book, and and again, this shows up in very many works, very many of the papers also um, end on points of recommendation. But just to pick up with the sort of uh, comprehensive view that we get in the last chapter there, you single out different actors, agents who might be involved. Um, qu- quite sensibly, we find there the scientists themselves at the top of the list. And that's actually the one I would like to focus in on. But just for the sake of my listeners, there's also universities, funders, and then scientists communicators or the public in more general. But let, let, let's home in there on the scientists themselves, because it all kind of begins and ends with them. What what would you say from this platform of the podcast out toward individuals? What do we do with what we're finding out from science of science studies?
0: I think it comes back to our opening conversation about responsibility and taking responsibility um, for the conduct of science. Too often when We present our work, whether it's on equity or research evaluation more generally scientists throw up their hands and say that they are mere actors in the system that's imposed upon them they are subject to promotion and tenure guidelines or national research evaluation systems that they serve at the pleasure of their administrators or that funding is determined at a national level and they have no control over it or they're discriminated against in the certain venues that they publish in but what i try to come back to is that science is a self-organizing system scientists are making the decisions about science and each one of us at a micro level is making decisions in our lab every day that either can change the culture and norms or perpetuate them and so it really comes back to us to ask how am i distributing labor on my team how am i allocating resources within my lab what are my norms of practicing science? And how am I advocating for change within the space of influence that I have? So we ask each scientist to take that reflexive moment to ask whether they are perpetuating a system that is just and fair and responsible and will lead to the most robust science or whether there are things that they can do to change it.
3: I totally agree again. Scientists are group leaders, reviewers, editors, administrators, we're mostly an autonomous community. So there's no, there's mostly no one else to blame. Um, and the system that that we're in is the one that, that that we've created collectively, so there's a responsibility in all of the actions and all of the different hats that that we wear to actually make make science better and and fight these these inequality that as we've mentioned earlier are are bad from an individual point of view and from an ideal point of view uh, but also are bad for science. We could do better science
2: uh, by being more inclusive. But as with any social institution, there needs to be some, not exactly a movement, but consensus and um, let's say concerted effort. And and, and I think that is one of the major services coming from science of science is, well, we need to know what the facts are before it is we can figure out how to move, right? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, that's the strength of, I, I believe, the type of work that, that has been done in the field is to provide hard data. Uh, many of, well, all of the inequalities have been documented before, uh, but mostly uh, or very often from a qualitative point of view, maybe with anecdotal evidence. Uh, the, the strength of the field is that it provides relatively objective data, which is not perfect, but, but gives data to, to often people who cannot be convinced otherwise uh and and that is something that's quite important but also that it's a responsibility of the field to actually have the right data and not overstretch our findings because indeed it's going to influence policies
2: right um then i suppose perhaps one last uh question or or opportunity to to speak uh to the work that you're doing when it comes back down to our Let's say f- focus in, in 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 the works that we're talking about here of women uh, in science. What would be, let's say, one of the major changes that you would like to see? And and I'm and I'm imagining also something that's perhaps very small that could have a huge follow-on effect. Is there something there that is highly actionable? Let's say at the moment
0: for me, it would be changing the way we support and resource women, particularly when they're engaging in uh, child or elder care. I think many of our initial approaches for support end up to be isolating. We give people extended leave time. We allow them space and time away from the academy or the institution. And I think that we can move towards providing more resources for them to have uh, support for child care, for elder care, to make it easier for them to engage in small-term mobility instances, providing childcare at conferences. I think small things like that will keep women more engaged in scientific work rather than isolating them from it.
2: Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. Okay, very good. Well, thank you very much for that, Cassidy. (laughs) Thank you also, uh, Vincent. That is uh, Cassidy Sugimoto and Vincent Lariviere, uh, many-time co-authors and also researchers in the science of science. Until next time, then, here on the podcast, Scholarly Communication.